Amen. So it has been a wonderful journey through uh, the book of Acts. We've been following, particularly in the latter part from chapter 13 on, following Paul's journeys. Um, and we've seen that from the moment he discovered that Jesus was the Messiah, um, uh, he had such passion and zeal and faith right to the end, right to this conclusion. We've seen how at every turn and opportunity, uh, he, he would look to share the gospel driven by a, a passion and a faith that others would know Christ. Um, and we followed those journeys. And now, of course, we are on the way uh, to Rome. And in fact, this chapter concludes that last journey to Rome from chapter 21 until this last uh, chapter. And of course, Paul had deeply desired to see the church in Rome. We remember, we don't read of Roman in any of the missionary journeys. Paul had never been there, but there was a church, a growing, established church there, and Paul had deeply desired to go there. In fact, the book of Romans was written about three, maybe four years before where we are now in Acts 28. So he had already written this letter to the book of Romans, and he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. So you can see for years now, because this was written a few years before, it was in Paul's heart that he could visit the church in Rome, that he might impart some spiritual gift, that he would see that church and fellowship with those brothers and, uh, and confirm so many of the wonderful truths that he'd written in the letter, etc., in person. But now Paul is a prisoner and he's under Roman escort. We remember in, uh, in chapter 21, uh, he was in prison in Caesarea for two years. And finally, he's now going on to Rome. It's about a 2,200-mile 2, uh, trip. It would have taken well over four months, of course, because of the shipwreck and they stay in Malta over winter. And in fact, that was the last scene. It was in Malta. Um, if you visit Malta today, you could go to actually the place where it's called St. Paul's Bay and St. Paul's Island, and they have the statue of the Apostle Paul, etc. For that is the um, celebrated site of where the shipwreck was. Of course, it's, it's hard to tell exactly. So when we think about Rome, we look at this journey, and we, we are familiar with this to some measure now. For we remember in Jerusalem and then the imprisonment in Caesarea and then they embarked on their journey around Cyprus and then came back down under Crete where they uh, were looking to um, stay for a while. They were going to move along the coast of Crete, got caught in the storm, ended up in Malta um, and that's where we left them at the end of last uh, class, uh, at the end of chapter 27, we see them, uh, those that could swim were swimming, and those that couldn't were holding onto boards for dear life and kicking doggy paddle, whatever they could, to get into land. And miraculously, all 276 people, as predicted by the Lord through Paul, were spared and were saved. And that was incredible. It gave validity to Paul as a, 
uh, in his faith and as a messenger and also help them in their faith towards towards uh, faith in the in in God themselves personally and then we're going to see in the rest of this chapter they go uh, from Malta up to Sicily where they stop and then through up the coast finally to come to to Rome so we remember those last two verses of chapter 27 the centurion says, whoever can swim, swim. And then verse 44, and the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship. And so it was, they all escaped and to get to dry land. So now we jump into chapter 28. And verse 1 tells us, and when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta or Melita in some translations. It, it means refuge. It's the island of Malta that we know today. It's about 60 miles south of the island of Sicily. And then it was a prominent place for, for, uh, for navigation, a navigation point, and, uh, and, and ships would winter there also. And, it, and Luke notes that the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. So imagine the, the natives, the, those that are on, were on that island, are aware that there's been a shipwreck and more and more people are coming in, scores and scores of them, and finally there's a few hundred of them that are on the beach cold and wet and tired, and these, these locals uh, show unusual kindness. And when we pick up on that word as Luke is writing, we know that in his heart and mind, it's a note of God's providential care for his people. An unusual kindness, and we see that as an expression of God's uh, heart and provision for them. Um, and they would stay uh, not just for a few days on this island, but as we'll see, they'll be there for three months. They end up wintering there. Um, and, and obviously they have to wait for another ship before they can go. Verse 3, these islanders, these, these Maltese people are very kind, but also very superstitious. That when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks um, and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So it's cold, remember, they're making a fire. There seems to be a sluggish uh, snake that's sleeping somewhat in the sticks. And when he picks it up to put it in the fire, that awakens the, the snake and it latches onto Paul's hand. And Paul basically shakes it off into the fire and, uh, and, and that's it. Now, the locals, of course, would have known that this was a venomous snake and they would have had in their experience some among their own members who would have no doubt died of snake bites. When you go to India, you hear stories of those people that they know who died of snake bites. One of the children in the home, his father was farming and died from getting bitten by a snake. It's not uncommon. So these people certainly would have known that this was a poisonous snake and this man who just got bitten is going to drop dead. So they're all watching him accordingly, nudging each other. Oh my gosh, you know, that was a, they named the snake and boy, how long do you think he's got? They're just waiting for him to drop down uh, dead because they're very superstitious. They come to the conclusion in verse four. Uh, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. 
Ironically, Saul of Tarsus was a murderer. However, of course, we know that he had been forgiven and now he was a completely changed, different man. But they came to this conclusion and sadly, many people today, even Christians, carry measures of superstition into their faith and think that when bad things happen, it's some type of Christian karma and God is against me and I'm being judged by God. And that type of thinking is not healthy for anyone, particularly if it's mixed up in any type of theology. It doesn't serve us well at all. It is, um, it is subjective. It, it, is, it is not based on, on truth and, um, and it's not the correct way to think. But nevertheless, they saw Paul was, was about to be uh, judged according to their worldview or whatever. Um, so verse 5, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And this was shocking to them. They saw it bite them. It wasn't a question mark to them. They, they knew that he would die from this bite. And yet he continued as though nothing had happened. Um, I was talking to a, a, a pastor friend recently in, in Hungary. He's going through a certain trial, we could say, in his life. And I asked him, well, how are you doing? How are you managing? And he says, he, and he referred to this story. He said, you know, like Paul shook the viper off into the fire. I find myself doing that frequently. And I like the, the picture of that, that sometimes we might get bitten in life, but there is, you can shake it off, uh, in, you know, before the Lord and, and it doesn't have to take you down. But, um, all their eyes are fixed on him. Verse six, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down. So they waited and they waited and they watched and the fire is crackling and they're whispering and watching him and nothing happens. It says after they watch for a long time, we don't know how long exactly, but no harm had come to him. They changed their minds and said he was a god. (laughs) And you have to find some humor in that. That just some time earlier they were saying he was a murderer and now they're saying he's a god. And how foolish and fickle and turning on a dime or, or with a wind is superstition and human emotion and natural thinking. It's not found. It can be so easily swayed, particularly with some type of crowd mentality. It went from a murderer to a god. And that type of superstition, we could think, well, look, we look back to these ancient people, ignorant people, but now in the 21st century, we're more sophisticated than that. But now we, if we look up from our phones, we, not, we see superstition is all around us, despite the technology and education that's around. People still are reading things like horoscopes and, and really find great, great you know, comfort or fear from them accordingly. But anyway... So, there's an interesting uh, note in Mark's gospel where he refers to those who'll be taking the gospel out in the commission and he makes this one little line which, is, which has had quite an effect uh, with certain ones and it says that they will take up serpents and if they drink anything deadly poison it will, be, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and will recover, etc., so in that context, particularly in the early church, when those types of miracles were in abundance through the hands of the apostles, you could see that they served 
the purpose of validating the messenger and therefore opening doors and hearts to the message. Um, and this, this case with Paul, I think, would serve a, as a good example where there was no presumption there. He wasn't going out of his way to get bitten by a snake to prove the point, but it happened and God allowed him to live. But I was shocked when I was uh, this, I had a little, um, what would you call it? A little moment of distraction in my studies this afternoon when uh, I began to look at some of the churches in America in the Appalachian region, in places like Tennessee and, and places like that, where there are 125 churches today who practice snake handling of venomous snakes to, as an expression of their worship and to show their faith. Uh, even though it's it's illegal in some parts to, to have those uh, poisonous snakes and stuff like that. And you can see the videos. Of them. You're just like shaking your head. You can't believe that this is true, but it is. And they're telling the story. Yeah, my, my father was the last pastor, but he died by a snake bite. And my brother died of a snake bite. And my best friend died of a snake bite. And now I'm the pastor. And if you get bitten, it's God's time for you to go. <laughs> and you're thinking, okay, all right, so... Anyway, we will not be introducing that, you know. <laughs> but anyway, it's not something to seek or presume on, but God in his sovereignty, um, God is sovereign. And, and in this case, certainly, it, um, it made them sit up and think as they looked at this person, Paul, the prisoner who was among these that had come in on the shipwreck. And in verse 7, in that region... On the Isle of Malta, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island. It's believed this refers to him being the governor, if you will, of this island, the Roman governor. His name was Publius, and he received us and entertained us courteously for three days. We could see another note of God's providence here. Um, and... Um, Verse 28, and it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. And Paul went into him and prayed, and he lay his hands on him and healed him. So here is another um, miraculous sign. Not only is Paul himself spared or healed, we could say, but through his hands, the father of this noted governor is also healed. Um, we also remember that the author is Luke, the physician. And these types of events must have been so wonderful, particularly and curious for Luke as the doctor, as he watched these miraculous things happen and all through his missionary journeys. He had seen such things. And the news went around the island. So in verse 9, when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So you can see doors beginning to open with Paul's influence and becoming known on the island. And these three months, and there's not so much, this is another one of those stories we'd love there to be another chapter or two to tell us uh, what's said in just a sentence. We would love to have heard more of those stories. But nevertheless, the commentary leads us to see that, Paul, that God was opening certain doors of Paul being known and being influenced. It doesn't say here that he preached the gospel. But any student of Acts would certainly come to that conclusion that he did. For by now we have come to know the man. 
we, could, we, we could not in our wildest imaginations think that he would be here for so long and not share the gospel um, as, 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 as opportunity would afford. So, um, in verse uh, 10, obviously their hearts being filled with thankfulness, it says they also honored us in many ways. And when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. And this is a beautiful expression of, uh, of thankfulness, that they were honored. Now, this is one of those things that sometimes people struggle over, even as Christians, that, to, that we would honor people or that we would accept honor as people. But I think it's fitting and it's beautiful. Of course, God is the one who is at the center and he is the one that gets the glory. But among the body of Christ, that type of honor, it says, in honor, preferring one another. And we must learn to give honor and we must learn to receive honor. And it's pride, not humility, that says, oh, no, no. It's a form of pride. But humility recognizes that honor is part of our our uh, family expression, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And nevertheless, these people honoured Paul, and um, uh, and and of course um, Aristarchus and Luke and others who are who are on the journey with them. And verse uh, eleven. And from the island, they go to the mainland. And it would have been a wonderful send-off, I can imagine. After three months with these people, it says, We sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers which had wintered at the island. Now, you, your guess is as good as mine why Luke mentions that little detail, that those, those two brothers who were sons of Zeus, who were gods, it's represented by the constellation Gemini. Why they were on the ship and why Luke notes that, it's, uh, it, it's for uh, speculation, if you like. Um, we can imagine that Paul probably, as they were going on the boat, nudged Luke and says, we don't need those guys to, to keep us safe. God is with us, as they saw how he'd already saved them from the last shipwreck. And Paul actually had a few shipwrecks, uh, you know, in his history. So... But anyway, um, verse 12, and landing, did I go ahead? And landing in Syracuse, we stayed three days. So if we look at our map again, we'll see they're going up from Malta and then just there on the eastern coast of Sicily is Syracuse. It was, um, it was a busy port and at the time the most important city on the island. And from there we circled round and we reached Regium. And if you can see, they circle round, and of course, they would come up through here. And uh, right on the toe of the foot or the boot of Italy, uh, there is Regium, which is today Regio di Calibria. Maybe some of you have been there, I don't know. But anyway, that's the Regium that we're reading of in our book in a, of tonight. And, um, and then they go on to uh, Puteoli, which is modern... Pozzuoli, and they arrived there in the early spring. And of course, that was a, um, again, all of these places are, would be dominant ports that typically ships would stop at. This would have been the destination of many of these large wheat carrying vessels uh, from Egypt. And they come to the Bay of Naples, just here, 
which was about 130 miles from the actual city of Rome. And verse 14 uh, tells us that there we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. So we went towards Rome. Again, they're not actually in Rome yet. They've, they've come into the harbor, and as they get on land, somehow the word has got out. The, the brothers in Rome have heard of Paul coming, and they're waiting for him. And when the ship comes in, there are brothers that meet them. It's amazing, before the time of cell phones and email, but somehow they, they, were, they managed to, to greet them. And what a wonderful uh, meeting this, this must have been. There was a very large Jewish population uh, in this in this uh, area, and he found uh, the brethren there uh, of the Christian of the Christian Church. And they, for seven days, they were together. And again, we could have only imagined uh, the richness of that time. Um, although Paul had never been to Rome, he'd never been in that church. We know from the book of Romans, in the end of chapter sixteen. He lists the names of many people in the church that he knew to some measure or degree. How we perhaps some of them had come to the Bible college in Ephesus, or we, we don't know exactly how, but through the missionary journeys, uh, etc., he, he knew some of them, and he greets them in the book of Romans. But many of them would never have seen him, never had met him. He wouldn't have met them. They would have loved to hear the stories about the missionary journeys, about his own conversion, but most importantly, to hear about the treasures that he unfolds in all of the epistles, about body life and the cross and grace and forgiveness and our position in Christ and all of those wonderful things. That would have been a rich seven days for sure. And he rehearses with them why he ends up in Rome. He tells them what we've just studied from chapter 21 to to now, how he was arrested. Um, uh, He was under the Roman guard, under the Roman governor in Caesarea for two years, and then he saw that he wasn't going to get a fair trial. So as a Roman citizen, he appeals to Caesar. He gets put on a ship. That one didn't make it. I got put on a second ship, and here I am. And he immediately identifies with his Jewish brothers in verse, um, let me see here. They came to meet us. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took great courage, verse 15. And when we had come to, should be towards Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Okay, so he's in Rome there in verse uh, 16. Now, um, so after all we've studied, we remember how far away in the heart it was of Paul through the book of Romans and also earlier in the book of Acts when he speaks about, oh, I must go to Rome. How the Lord had told him, Paul, don't worry, just as you testified of me in Jerusalem, you will also testify of me in Rome. And now we get to the point in the story where finally they come to Rome. And Paul, it tells us in verse um, 16 here, he was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. <clears throat> it's possible some believe that the soldier was even chained to him, but certainly 24-7 watch on Paul. He had certain liberties and certain freedoms, we could say because of the providence of God and also because he was a Roman citizen um, and there were no fit 
charges that were, could be really fixed on him. But here he is in Rome. He has a private dwelling, but a Roman guard and certain liberties. And, um, and uh, we could say he's, he's in the hands of an official Roman superior and soldier, but really he's in the hands of God. God has him in this place at this time. Another important thing for us to note right here as we hit the pause button is that this time when Paul was a prisoner in Rome is when he wrote his aptly named prison epistles, namely Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and the little book of Philemon. Those little letters were letters that he wrote right at this time when he's under Roman guard and he's thinking about his brothers and sisters in the churches, all the church in Colossae and the church in Ephesus and Philemon, and he would hear news and he would write these inspired letters and they would uh, find their way to those churches and be read out. Um, he would have visitors that would come to, to, to question him, to meet him. Many of them, I'm sure, he would uh, lead to the Lord or share the faith with. One such visitor he had one day was a runaway slave called Onesimus. And Onesimus, through Paul's ministry, uh, becomes a Christian. And perhaps one day Onesimus opens up to Paul and he tells him about his background and his history. He says, you know what, I'm from a place called Colossae. And Paul says, I know that town. I, I, I started a church in that town. I got many friends and brothers and sisters in that town. Tell me about your, your life there. Oh, oh no. I was a servant in the house of a man called Philemon. Philemon, I know Philemon. He became a believer under my ministry. Oh, I've spent many hours praying and rejoicing and fellowshipping with Philemon. Go on, tell me the rest of the story. Well, I stole from him. And I, and I ran and I left and I decided to come to Rome. We don't know how if a few years had passed at that time. But Paul hears the story and he says, Oh, Onesimus, I understand, but now you are a Christian and your life is changed. And I think you should go back to Colossae. You should go back to Philemon. And he would say, but if I go back, I could, if I would be held accountable for my crime, I could perhaps lose my life. And Paul says, you go back, but I write this letter for you. And Paul writes that beautiful letter, just one chapter, the book of Philemon. And it's a letter of intercession written by the beloved Paul the aged, penned to Philemon, representing Paul's heart for the sake of Onesimus. And when you read it and you realize that context, it's so beautiful because he says to Philemon, oh, he, he receive him as a brother. And Onesimus, the name actually means, does it mean profitable? or It means profitable or unprofitable? I think it means profitable. And there's a play on words there. And he says, oh, he was unprofitable, but now he is profitable both for you and me. It's a beautiful story. So this was happening in Rome. Paul is writing these, these prison epistles. You can imagine some of the people in those churches, when they hear about the beloved Paul now in prison in Rome, how that they would be concerned for him. And he addresses that several times in those letters, particularly in Philippians chapter 1. And he writes and says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. 
so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord have become more confident in their own ministry. So it's wonderful to note here that Paul in Rome under house guard writes to the church in Philippines and says, guess what? The soldiers are getting saved. And every now and then they chain another one to me. I get a brand new person to preach to. And one by one, we don't know what the rotation was, but one by one, these guards are getting chained to him and he has a captive audience, so to speak. It wasn't just that Paul was chained to the guard, but the guard was chained to Paul. (laughs) And Paul used it accordingly. Beautiful, beautiful point to note there. We know that Paul, of course... As a Jew, always, though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, as he's named in the book of Romans, he always carried his heart for his fellow Jew after the flesh. So after being in Rome only for three days, one of the things that he wanted to do in verse 17, after three days, Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. If you read different sources, it's estimated somewhere between 20,000 and 60,000 Jews were in Rome at this time. So he called for the leaders of the Jews to come. And he said to them, and of course, this is a, this is a wonderful rich part of this chapter. He, re- he rehearses his case to them, again, why he had appealed to Caesar. So when they had come, he said to them, men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So immediately he identifies with them as his Jewish brother. And... Um, He says, I was given to the Romans, but I'd done nothing against Roman law, nothing against our law, but nevertheless, here I am, a prisoner in Rome. And he says, when they had examined me, the Romans, uh, they wanted to let me go because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, and you remember that, the Roman governor said, I find no, there's no problem, we should let him go. And when the Jews heard about that, they said, no, 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 hold on, send him back to Jerusalem, let's try him again. And that's when Paul, Paul said, okay, I'm not having this. So the Jews spoke against it. I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. And for this reason, I have called for you. Now, the context here is, He's perhaps chained to the soldier. He's in his house arrest in Rome. He's called for the Jewish leaders and he says, this is why I've called you here. To see you and to speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And he gently lays this beautiful phrase to their hearts, the hope of Israel, which have resonated with any any zealous Jew, this, this messianic expectation was in the heart and history of all the Jewish people. It was the expectation of all the prophets that they studied and read every, every time in the synagogue. And Paul says, you know why I'm on trial? You know I got in so much trouble for the hope of Israel. And of course, he's, he's basically saying that Jesus is the Messiah, which, he, which, he'll, which he'll get to. Verse 21, then they said to him, we have received 
no letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. So the stage is set, right? There, there, okay, we understand. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And we understand you've been accused and, and, and things are being said. And you, tell us, we, we would like to hear what you have to say for yourself. And Paul says, oh, I could think of nothing more that I would like to do than to, than to explain it to you. So these Jews, at least these leaders, wanted to, to hear. At least they wanted to hear. So verse 23 So they appointed him a day. They didn't do it right on that day. They penciled another day on the calendar. And in fact, on that day, more came. And um, verse 23, yeah. Uh, Many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both from the law of Moses and the prophets, from morning till evening. Oh, that would be a great, great time, wouldn't it? Imagine morning to evening, page to page, prophecy to prophecy, uh, engaging the hearts. Listen to these words. He explained, he testified, he was persuading. Wonderful words. And what a, what an incredible time that would have been. It reminds us of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus said to them, all fools and slow of hearts to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ would have to suffer to enter into his glory? And then it says, and he began at Moses and all the prophets to, to unveil the, the things that were written about himself. And that was Paul's strategy. All through the book of Acts, we've seen that. All through the synagogues he went to, he just went to Moses and the prophets and clearly showed that Jesus had fulfilled those prophecies. We remember actually back in Acts 17, on the, um, that's the second missionary journey. And then Paul, as his custom was in Acts 17, 2 through 4, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is in Thessaloniki. And explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And notice there it says, and some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of devout Greeks, etc. So we always see that kind of result. At the end, there's the the message, the conflict. Then there are some who believe and perhaps are added to him or to the Lord. And then there are some who resist and whatever happens. But here we read that again. Go back to Acts 28, verse 24. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken and some disbelieved. So you always have those varying responses. And so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. Now, one word here isn't necessarily literally one word, but the word that he concluded with, which actually does include very one, one very potent word, and that's the word Gentiles. But that final word is, is quite, um, quite a defining one. Let's see what he says. 
when Paul had said one word, the Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers. Verse 25. Um, and the word he's speaking of is referring to the blindness and the hardness of the hearts that the Jewish nation would express towards the Messiah and the ultimate extension of the gospel to the Gentiles, the mystery that Paul explains in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 3, that the, the mystery that the church, one body, would be made up of both Jew and Gentile in one body. So uh, when when they did, uh, sorry, yeah, so he quotes in verse 26, he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, 9 and 10, which interestingly enough is is quoted more often than any other Old Testament scripture. It's quoted six times, this Isaiah 6, and it says, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed. And lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has now been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So Paul quotes this prophecy of Isaiah, which was predicting the hardness of heart when Christ would come. He came to his own, and his own received him not, John 1.11. But as many as received him, he gave them power to become the sons of God, even those who were born from above, who believed in his name, verse 12. So, and then he, he quotes that prophecy, and then he says, let it be known to you, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. And this was the word that they were referring to, that when they heard that, if you go back to, uh, um, go back a few verses, where is that? Verse 20. Uh, anyway, when it gets to that particular word, they were persuaded, some disbelieved. Yeah. So when they got to that word, they, were, they, they, they argued among themselves, they reasoned among themselves, and they couldn't, uh, verse 29, when he had said these, these words, the Jews departed, there it is, yeah, and had a great dispute among themselves. So we would ask the question, why does Luke record this event? Now remember, Paul was in Rome for two years uh, he's, he's, he's there for two years, it's recorded, under house arrest, and he has this liberty and he has this ministry. But Luke purposes to highlight, out of all the things that must have happened, this event, when Paul called the Jewish leaders to his home and presented the, his story and the gospel to them, and uh, for one, one, one final extension to these particular leaders of the Jews in Rome. It seems, remember, that this has been a running theme through the book. If we remember that, that, that Acts in, is somewhat a transitional book, it starts in Jerusalem, it ends in Rome. It starts in Jerusalem as the center and it end, goes to, moves to Antioch because the gospel is going to go out to the whole world. 
it moves from Peter to Paul, from the, from the Jews exclusively to the Jews and Gentiles together. There's a, there's a move, a transition, and that's why Luke highlights this here, that the gospel which had come first to the Jews, and of course the gospel was always to come first to the Jews, but not only for the Jews, but through the Jews to all men, and this was what was being fulfilled through the theme stated in Acts 1.8 that when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will have power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And this is exactly what had happened, that God had faithfully given a witness towards the Jewish people, but, but now the, the gospel had gone beyond uh, beyond them, and it was going to the uttermost parts of the world as well. So verse 30 and 31, our final two verses, then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which would concern, which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And that's the final statement of the book. It's a little bit like, and I was sharing this with Brian earlier on, it's a little bit like you'd be reading a book and someone ripped out the last couple of pages and you get to that part and you're like, and then finally he was waiting at the bus stop and the car came down the road and, and he looked to his watch and, and then he looked down there and you're like, wait, what? Where's, what's the next part? And it's a, the book of Acts uh, seems to finish in that sense. We, we feel that there was, should be another chapter or something else that should say. We're just left with this picture of Paul at house arrest in his home, chained to a guard, ministering to people, and, and of course it's intentionally written like that. We, we must come to that conclusion. For there is Acts chapter 29 and Acts chapter 30, and it does go on, and this is what we would referred to as the church age or the age of grace or the great commission that what's laid out in these wonderful chapters of course continues all the way through the church age and we have this wonderful great commission some there are many ministries that actually coin this phrase acts 29 as if it means the church going forward with the gospel and uh, it, it seems like it's an unfinished story that needs a sequel but it does have a sequel and this is the beautiful mission of the church the work is finished the holy spirit has come but the work of the mission and jesus building his church uh continues and he's building his church today and by his grace he'll use us in that glorious work so father we thank you tonight as we uh just come to this wonderful conclusion of this crucial history in our new testament the history of the birth of the church and the growth of the church, the organization of the church, the persecution and the scattering of the church, your incredible plan to, to choose a vessel of grace that will carry the gospel through those missionary journeys and, and through the inspired letters capture those incredible doctrines and truths that we, we, have, we love to, to learn and consider and believe with all our hearts. We're so thankful that we can be your students or your disciples as we learn and grow together. Thank you for opening your word to us again and again and for us growing in our understanding and also in our faith together. 
seal these uh, these passages, this these classes to our hearts. Oh, let us let us have have reflections, bring things back to remembrance for us. Give us a retention through your spirit, we pray. And we pray for our church, that our church would be a witness in this community and beyond, that many would come through these doors and come to know you, that many we would meet on the streets. And I think of a lady I spoke to today on the street and just thank you for that type of divine appointment where we can just share your heart with people. We pray that you would draw people Uh, to yourself and use us in that wonderful work. In Jesus' name, amen.